we have a guest tonight. And he, along with his various colleagues, are working to cultivate a resurgence of a deep Catholic faith and a rich Catholic culture in the Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Which is, by the way, if you've never been there, that's such a beautiful part of Oklahoma. Now, of course, this involves feasting on the splendor of truth and the sense of wonder that comes from the primary sources of the literary Christian West. They cultivate an authentic community of friendship and they integrate the truths of our Catholic faith. These truths have a direct impact on all aspects of life, the personal, social, the political, moral, and the religious elements of life. Here to tell us more, please welcome the president of the Alquin Institute for Catholic Culture, Dr. Richard Maloche. Dr. Maloche, welcome. Wow, Good to have you it, with us. It is a pleasure. And, and to be here on the uh, anniversary of the birthday of Mother. This is, yeah, it's pretty This cool. is quite fitting. I know. It's very... it's, uh, it really is something that was, it's a great thing for us to remember that. And, you know, the kind of thing that you're doing is exactly what she would like to have highlighted. That's the kind of thing she wants people to know about. But let's get to understanding what you're doing. First of all, this is the Alquin Institute. Who was Alquin? Yeah, he is a very, a relatively obscure character in the history of the church. Yeah. Not too many people know about him. Yeah. Um, so it may be a bit odd that we would choose him as our patron, as a namesake for the Institute. Um, but is he a saint? He's, well, he's, there's some questions in regards to that. Popularly, he's known as a blessed Okay. Um, uh, within the, the larger Catholic intellectual tradition. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, he is a very essential individual. Absolutely. Um, and it's a shame, really, that he's not better well known. And so a lot of what we're doing at the, at the Institute is trying to make his cause known and the importance of him historically um, within the, the Catholic world. Mm -hmm. So first of all, when did Alquin live and where did he come from? Sure. So Elquin uh, was born somewhere around 735. Mm -hmm. um, he was born in a kind of remote area of northern England. Um, Northumbria was the region where he was. He came from. Um, he there's some questions in regards to you know his status as a cleric. Um, some point to that perhaps he was a deacon. Others perhaps he received uh, the fullness of orders mm -hmm. and became a priest. Nonetheless, he he was important because in the year 800. Charlemagne um, was the Holy Roman Emperor. Correct. Appointed to be the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and this is after centuries of cultural, political, social chaos, the so-called Dark Ages. The Pope uh, um, crowned, if you will, Charlemagne. And Charlemagne realized at that point that he needed help in order to bring the, uh, you know, the, the society, the culture out of this, this political and cultural misery. And so he gathered, if you will, scholars from around the known world, uh, the known empire, 
And he singled out Elquin specifically to begin the educational and cultural reforms that were so necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And so he pointed Elquin to do this. Now, surprisingly, as the new czar, if you will, of, of culture and education, his first act was to order, and you'd appreciate this, Father, to order that the, the forests of Europe be populated with boar and deer. Everybody scratch our heads like, how, what does this have to do at all with kind of a cultural or educational And by surgeons? boar, you mean wild pigs, Correct. not dull people or boring people. <laughs> That's right. This is wild pigs. Wild pigs uh, and deer. I mean, he's a very practical thinker. And so he realized if we need an educational reform, we need the tools of education. And the, the hair of the boar would become the, the instruments of writing. The brushes would be used with the boar hair. And the skin of the deer, the vellum, would be the, the parchment, the paper in which to, to write. And so practically, he was, he was a very concrete thinker. And one of the things uh, in that regard is that, you know, paper was no longer available from Egypt. Mm. Uh, you know, papyrus, what we call from which we get the word paper, uh, was no longer being exported to Europe. Mm -hmm. So vellum... Oh, the, the skins of, of animals. Yeah, this was the medium. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely necessary for, for the books that were yep. being copied. Um, so that was his first thing to do. And I think, again, very practical. Uh, we need these tools of learning. But also I think there's a deeper reason why he, he ordered basically the entire population to go into the fields, to go into the forests. There's something about nature which is healing, which is medicinal. And this is a, a fractured world. And so he realized that individuals need to come in contact with reality. And that contact with reality heals. Nature has this tendency to heal almost naturally. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know this to be the case. If you have a wound, what do you do? You kind of expose it to the air in order to heal. And so Alcuin, I think, very prudently, very wisely decided we need to heal this community, this, 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 these, these folks from around the diocese, they need to become in contact with reality. Mm -hmm. So both very practical, but also pedagogically realized we need, we need some healing. So that was his first thing to do. His second step in this cultural um, uh, model of, of resurgence was to, was to have all the texts that had survived, um, the kind of years of, of misery, the, the burning of texts uh, that were found in the monasteries when the barbarian horrors kind of swept through Europe. They destroyed all things that were good, true, and beautiful, including these ancient libraries. But there were some monasteries which preserved these texts, and Elkin realized we need to safeguard these. And so he ordered all these ancient texts to be copied, letter by letter, word by word. And so folks understand, one of the great things that happened when Ireland was converted, that there was no martyrdom. They didn't have a major persecution. And so many of the Irish converts went to convents and monasteries, and they had begun copying. And then they brought other copies to Europe. The reason was the Irish were so fierce as fighters, the barbarians didn't even want to mess with them. <laughs> Yes, there's a reason why they're called the Fighting Irish. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's great. And also, you know, this this idea that these texts need to be copied and, and preserved was was essential. And, and the fact that we have these ancient texts today, that we're able to recourse to Homer 
and these other great texts is really the, the consequence of Elquin and mm-hmm. the desire to preserve this, these ancient texts. Um, otherwise, they would have been lost to history. Another key thing that he did, and this, this is no small issue, he also helped devise a way of writing letters. Correct. Because people had their own styles of writing the letters. Mm-hmm. And those are very difficult to read, whatever is left of them, very hard to read. He standardized the letters so that people can yeah. read texts the very fact much that we can, better. That we can text today is a direct result of the efforts yes. of Elkwood. Exactly. Yes. And it, they're intelligible. So that's the second thing he did. And the third thing he did, he said, let's gather all these educators and bring them together form these communities of, of scholarship, these communities of learning, and learn from one another. So there's really kind of a threefold effort that he developed. Return to kind of nature, immediate contact with reality, immediate contact with ancient texts through the, through the copying of these texts, and thirdly, let's bring together all the, the educators, the scholars together in these communities of learning. And as a result of his efforts, what you saw was the resurgence of really a Catholic culture that the world has never seen since. It was just, it's known as the Carolingian Renaissance. It was just this unprecedented moment of human flourishing. And by Carolingian, this refers to Charlemagne. Correct. Yeah, and his efforts. Yeah. What's also important too, Charlemagne wanted universal literacy. He wanted everybody to learn, and he started it himself. He learned how to read and write, not well, but he learned some. That's right. And his teacher was was Alcuin of York. Yes. So, yes. and so what we're trying to do here in the diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma is, we figured if that worked on the large scale, right? If if Catholic culture really developed and flourished as a result of Alcuin's efforts, perhaps it'd be prudent to attempt something similar in our diocese. Yes. Let's look at these three principles and try to enculturate these three principles here and now with the hope of establishing a new Christendom in, in our diocese. Now, you bring these same three principles as the core principles of your institute, correct? Correct, yeah, we call them real living, real friendship, real learning. Yep. Yeah, so that these, and, and with the idea of not a pretend reality, but reality as it actually is. Correct. This is yeah. So we have we have a number of events that we do, but they always try to incorporate these three foundational principles. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we'll gather um, Catholic school personnel. We'll gather catechists from parishes together. Um, and we will gather as friends in a communal setting. Often we meet in places of authentic leisure. So we're not meeting in classrooms per se, but rather we're meeting in, in pubs. We're meeting in cafes. We're meeting in, in homes around hearths, you know, where people normally meet mm-hmm. and where people usually have really meaningful conversations. Um, and then we have recourse to real food often, as friends tend to do, right? This is kind of the, the natural medium of conversation. So we, we always have kind of locally sourced food. 
Um, much of the food is from my own farm, you know, of my cured meat that you, I make. You yourself uh, have a farm that's, you know, not a pretend farm. This is a working farm, correct? It is, yes. Well, working is a strong word. <laughs> we try to make it work. Uh, but yes, yeah, we, we, we grow most of our own, um, well, meat products mm -hmm. um, from the farm and uh, have a somewhat of a thriving garden if the bugs don't get it. But. And... I know Oklahoma well enough that there are plenty of wild pigs and deer out there as well. So you're just like there with Alquid. That's right. We're trying to do something very similar. And so we'll, we'll come together and we have good drink, good food. And then we have recourse to primary sources, just like Alquin did. So mm -hmm. instead of reading textbooks yes. or, or watching uh, videos, you know, they're the place for those. Uh, but authentic learning always takes place within the context of friendship. Mm -hmm. And so we have recourse to primary text. You know, instead of reading what someone said about Augustine, we actually read Augustine. We actually read Aquinas. We actually read Newman. And in that way, this is one of the reasons why we call our faculty tutors and not faculty or professors or teachers. Because as a tutor, we see ourselves as being taught as well. Mm -hmm. Right? The true master is Augustine. The true master is Aquinas, and they're teaching us. Now, we're just fellow t fellow pilgrims, if you will, on this intellectual um, encounter with truth. No, A, I can't agree strong, more strongly enough with you that the need to get to actual texts is key because there are people out there who lie Flat out lie mm -hmm. about the text. I remember years ago, there was a, uh, one lady who was claiming that St. Thomas taught that women are just defective men. And they were saying this because, they said, well, we've got to get rid of Thomas Aquinas. What they didn't say, I don't know if they were too stupid or if they were lying. Mm -hmm. Those are the alternative. But Thomas said that this was the opinion of a guy, and he then refuted it. That's right. And if you don't read the text, you don't know. Yeah, he wrote that in there as something for him to refute, mm -hmm. not to agree with, but again, either fools or liars That's are out there. So we have to know the actual text. Mm -hmm. And there's but, a certain beauty to those actual texts. Yes. I mean, there's a reason why they're great and exactly. good. Exactly. Because they're able to express the truths of our Catholic faith in a way which is so profound and so meaningful that it can't help but stir the heart. And then, of course, the critique is, well, you know, the average layperson really can't understand Aquinas. They really can't stand Augustine, which is nonsense. They can. They can. And they enjoy it. They love it. Um, we just need to be able to present it to them in a way which is palatable. Now, one of the things about the Institute is that you have very strong support from your bishop, who is Bishop Condola, correct? Correct, yes. Um, and I actually remember him, met him when uh, I was giving some talks at Texas A&M, mm -hmm. where he used to be one of the chaplains and did fantastic work there. I think some of that feasting used to go on in Charlemagne's court. That's true, yes. Uh, he was very famous for loving meat. He mm -hmm. loved roast meat. Yes. Um, but it wasn't too good. He ate too much, but you got to <laughs> keep balance. Eat your vegetables, too. 
Well, it's an important element. You know, we are not angels. No. Right. And so much of the work that we're trying to do on that very point is we're trying to convince a culture that the life of the mind, yeah. right, that intellectual effort, that study, that learning is pleasurable. Yeah. Right? We've kind of lost that as a culture. Mm. You know, and you know, there's this wonderful text by Dickens called Hard Times. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's this scene in which there's a professor and it's kind of critiquing uh, the modern mode of education. And mm-hmm. there's a professor there. So he's a wonderful uh, name of this character. He's named Professor, professor Gradgrind. And he's there, he's the head of class. And of course, all the students are in a nice lined up role. They're sitting politely and quietly and he's lecturing them and just drilling in facts and data. And it's very kind of inhumane. It's not the way we were meant to learn and it's not pleasurable. And so we're trying to convince people that, you know, contrary to that mode of education, there's a way in which you can actually pursue academic studies, which is a joy. Yes. There's a merriment to it. It's one of the higher goods in life. And so we're trying to wed feasting with the feasting of the mind, very intentionally. This is where professors also have to have a sense of life and why they're professors. You know, why why are you into this? And it's easy to slip off the rails into thinking that, I'm here to appease my colleagues Mm -hmm. so I can get tenure and I can get published and recognition and promotion, which are fine in themselves. But if you focus on that, instead of the joy of communicating learning, Mm -hmm. or if you think that I have to make something innovative just to show creativity instead of being faithful to what we know and doing that creatively, mm-hmm. you can mess yourself up. Yeah. In many ways, the the origin of the Institute has as its, well, there's kind of three causes, if you will, of how the Institute actually came to be. So one of them was my disenchantment with higher education. I, you know, I was teaching at St. Greg's, a wonderful uh, Catholic university in, in Oklahoma for years. But I just became, I became more and more convinced that the modern educational model is not effective. Mm-hmm. Right? Me just pontificating at the head of class, although you had some very good students who were learning the material, there was no deeper conversion in their lives. Yes. And so I became kind of disenchanted with this and you know, changing my model of education, inviting my classes to my home and having them experience what an integrated family Catholic life looks like, mm-hmm. having them experiencing it poetically, experientially. Um, and then I began to see really wonderful effects in the classroom and in my students. Mm-hmm. And so there was this kind of movement in myself, my own pedagogy and my own uh, way of teaching. And at the same time, you had Bishop Condola, who was over in the Diocese of Tulsa. He began a strategic plan and came out with a pastoral letter in 2018. And in that pastoral letter, he called for the ongoing formation of Catholic leaders, catechists, Catholic school personnel, deacons, priests, you know, all the frontline workers that are involved in 
the efforts of Holy Mother Church to evangelize the nations. He said, we need to invest in them. Mm-hmm. So you had these two things happening, my disenchantment with the model of modern Catholic higher education. You have bishops, pastoral letter. And then the final kicker was the closure of St. Gregory's University. Um, and that really kind of, those three things converged. And as a result, you had the, the birth of the Institute. So it's wonderful to see how Providence kind of is, is yeah. working behind the scenes and all these things. The- I, I don't know if you have heard much about this, but I used to teach in Tulsa, the University of Dallas, where I had been a professor, had an extension program mm-hmm. there to do this as well. But, you know, that, that program ended. Um, and so um, it's nice to hear that this is revitalizing itself in this other in this other way. I think it's an important thing. And I think part of this is when I was in seminary back in, you know, I started seminary in 63. The council was still going on Mm -hmm. when I started seminary. And by the late 60s, a certain anti-intellectualism began to seep into seminary. We don't need to know all these things. We just need to be there for the people and show them that we care and that we love them. And this developed in the 70s, as I I could see this happening around me, that people are joining these other churches because they find community. We just have to build community rather than also answer their needs of the mind, their intellectual needs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of clergy couldn't answer why Catholicism was more true. Mm -hmm. And what you all are doing is revitalizing that community aspect integrated with the intellectual. They go together. That's right. It's not one or the other. That's exactly right. There's... There's this, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I mean, our modern culture is really defined by this ever-increasing gap between the truths of the gospel and how we live, right? It's, it's secularism, yep. basically. And so what the Institute is trying to do is try to, to, to bridge that gap mm-hmm. between, you know, what the, the Catholic Church teaches and then how we live. Right. And not have that divorced anymore. Really yes. integrate these two in very concrete, practical ways. And a part of that is, you know, falling in love with the truths of the Catholic faith, not just emotionally, which I think is first, the kind of the initial um, honeymoon phase, if you will, of conversion to the truths of the Catholic faith, which is good and proper and fitting. But at some point, you need to go deeper, right? You have to actually know what the church teaches. And yes. then the more you know, the deeper your love. Yeah. And of course, you know, much of the, of the work of the Alcuin Institute is ordered to not only kind of perfecting the intellect, this is an important element, but even prior to that, you know, we're trying to form a holistic people, holistic culture. And a part of that is the formation of the imagination, mm-hmm. uh, which is really very, very important, essential Yes. And so a part of that, of course, is building up the aesthetic sense, being able to perceive and understand beauty. Well, again, 
contrast that with our modern society where people are running to uh, pornography and the internet is loaded with mm -hmm. pornography as opposed to that which is beautiful art. People don't look to pornography for beauty. Mm -hmm. They look for it for self-gratification. But real art is something that lifts the person up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think that's beautifully said. Yeah, there's a transcendent nature to art. And I think what has happened in modernity specifically, and especially, I mean, if you're even looking at the development of, of a Catholic culture, right? And the elements of culture, everything needs to, just as in nature, combine function and form, right? These things go together in nature. A flower has a certain form and it's beautiful to behold, mm -hmm. but that beauty of a flower is functional, right? It's, it is, it's designed the way it is in order to attract insects to it. And this is why it smells beautiful. This is why it's all, it's so bright and, and colorful. So in nature, function and form are together. And what we have to do when we're developing culture whether that's in our domestic settings, in our classrooms, in our parishes, in our communities, um, in our own wardrobes, right? We need to unite these two together. And in modernity, I think you're absolutely right, we've separated form and function. Mm -hmm. And so you can have something that is, you know, functional and we use, without form, without beauty, and we call that something that's ugly, right? When something is, is, is utilitarian, but has no beauty to it, and the opposite is extreme as well. When you have when you have functionality, right, um, or or formality without without function, and then it just becomes gaudy. And I think this is really the mockery of the pornography industry. Yeah, right. It's that yeah. disassociation of function and form mm -hmm. within the human person. Mm -hmm. And you know, you see also. I one of one of the things I am still grateful for is that the high school seminary I attended in the early 60s, we had four years of music training and appreciation. They taught us how to read uh, sta in the standard music notation mm -hmm. as well as Gregorian chant. They taught us the classic composers. Every semester was a different composer. And uh, you know all of this enriched us as as young men and prepared us to understand truly beautiful music. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't like every part of classical music, um, but you still learned what you did like and got an idea why it was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's important for us to have beautiful music rather than angry noise. That's right. On that point, uh, there's a wonderful text, um, which I highly recommend to everyone, by Joseph Pieper. Leisure as yes. the basis of yes. culture. Yes. Because in order to appreciate the beautiful, where, you, where you're able to notice the functionality and the formality of a thing, um, how they come together in the sublime way, you need leisure. You need to be able to pause and gaze at a thing in order to really appreciate it, to understand how is this thing, how is, it, how is form and function united in this particular thing? Mm -hmm. um, and that takes a degree of contemplative leisure. And we just 
don't appreciate that, don't value that. But obviously in your formation, they encouraged it. Absolutely. Which is absolutely essential. Absolutely. There's this wonderful letter that um, Elkman wrote to Charlemagne on this very point. So Charlemagne, apparently from the context of this ancient letter that we have, was uh, busy in warfare. He was tracking down some Franks that were rebellious and he's, he slaughters all these, these, these Frankish um, rebellious group um, on, this, on the banks of this river. And his men are coming back and they're kind of in this feverish pitch of excitement because they're just engaged in this brutal attack on these, on these fellowship citizens, basically. And you could tell that Charlemagne was requesting Elquin to write him some music. He says, please write me some music. And Charlemagne does so in, in, this, in this correspondence that we have between the two. Uh, because ultimately he knew that music has a way in which it, it soothes the soul. It calms the individual. And uh, so this is a beautiful example of the importance of music, the importance of beauty, and the cultivation of virtue. In fact, in the early education program, music was a key component mm -hmm. because music also has a mathematical beauty to it. You have to have a certain time. So, well, this four, four time, three, four time, two, four time, all that. That's right, and yeah. the, all of the notes have to add up in each measure. And this uh, taught mathematics and music. They went together and astronomy. That was usually taught along with music uh, because science and the beauty of music had this coordination in mm -hmm. the, their mind. And we need to have those brought back together. That's right. They're essential. And we see this historically within the life of the church. Again, there's this wonderful essay by uh, Cardinal Newman called The Mission of St. Benedict. And he takes a sweeping, sweeping survey of the kind of educational history of the Catholic Church. And he, and he appoints three different ages, the Benedictine, the Dominican, and then the Ignatian periods. And basically he's saying, you know, these three are progressive. You need to have first the Benedictine, which is kind of this poetic experience of reality, which allows for the intellectual Dominicans to come along, which finally allows for the Ignatian activeness, the activity of the Ignatian to go and convert the entire world. But as a whole, the church kind of progressed through these stages, the poetic, the intellectual, and then the final, the, the actual. Mm -hmm. And I think what Newman is suggesting, at least this is how I interpret him, is that this has to happen not only within the, the life of the church as a whole, but also in the life of each individual soul. Right? We need the poetic experience of music, of poetry, before we can have a really robust intellectual life, before we can engage in apostolic activity. Mm-hmm. But we want to, as modern, just jump to the activity without doing the intellectual work, without, without proceeding with the poetic uh, experience of reality first. We're born into this period of activity. But if you don't have poetry and intellectual development, you're running on fumes. And you need to have the fresh fuel mm -hmm. of beautiful poetry and music and art, as well as the great intellectual development. Now, that gets to something I mentioned before the break. We have 
battles going on around the United States. I don't know how it is in other countries. I don't hear as much. Mm -hmm. But in this country, there are battles about teaching uh, children morals, especially sexual morality, before uh, they're very old, like preschool and first grade, and that trying to take that from the parents to the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would the Alcuin Institute offer parents in that area? I think in general, you know, as Catholics, we need to begin to think with the mind of Holy Mother Church. Mm-hmm. Right? And again, that in, that in order to do that, you need to turn to the past, you need to understand that great history of ours to begin to think with the mind of the church. And the church has been very clear that the primary educators of children are parents, mm-hmm. period, right? They are the educators. Yes. Um, now, there are certain circumstances in which that education is then um, relinquished to a certain degree to an outside extrinsic agent, i.e. a school system or a teacher. Mm-hmm. But the state, right, is not the teacher of your child. Right. You are, or yes. the parent is. Uh, the primary educators of children. In one in this realm, something that I've been doing a little bit of research on, and one of the things that I find that may be connected to this crisis is only five percent of boys, a little bit higher percentage of girls, only about five percent of boys learn about the role of sexuality and human life from their fathers. Mm. And of that 5%, only about 2% get a complete talk from their father. The other 3% or so, their father gives them a book to read and does not teach them. Yeah, that's a shame. It's worse than a shame. Because they don't communicate the privilege and dignity of becoming a father and what that entails on the natural realm. Mm -hmm. And if the boys don't learn from their fathers their own dignity as men and the dignity of women and the respect they have to have for themselves and for, for women and learn it from a man who has shown that respect to his wife and his children, they are going to make up Mm. what they think should be because they don't know from someone who has the experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, that's not right. You are not the first, nor am I to really kind of sound the alarm and the loss of authentic masculinity and what this looks like. Um, in the responsibilities of that of that fatherhood and that parenting right as a as a man, and uh, his charge was making sure that his children are formed correctly yeah. in the mind of the church. Yeah, we we relinquish that responsibility, and we need to reclaim it. It yeah. is it is a crisis, and it's it falls squarely on the shoulders of men. We if have failed. You don't as like a the way the government runs the railroad. What makes you think they can do much better with teaching your kids, especially something that important? And there's another problem. Well, we have a caller. I want to make sure we get to this. Karen, are you there? Yes. 
Hi, where are you calling from? Um, I'm calling from Minnesota. Oh, great. Thank you. And what is your question or comment? Um, I'm really fascinated with uh, Dr. Malosha's program. I was wondering if he could uh, give me some uh, feedback on how to start an LQ and Institute within my own parish community. Oh, good idea. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful question. We've actually been solicited by other dioceses at this point, you know, looking at our program, our institute, mm -hmm. what we have done, what we are doing. And so we, we do provide some kind of consultation to other dioceses. So I would recommend, you know, reaching out to your local parish priest, um, reaching out to your, to your local ordinary, your bishop. Um, in many ways, we're, listen, we're living in really interesting times in regards to higher education in general. Mm -hmm. Namely, we've, we're seeing the, the end, if you will, I think, of the kind of the formal Catholic higher education. You see these, the, the, these smaller Catholic institutions now are, are kind of closing their doors. St. Greg's is an, another example, but there are multiple, multiple examples. Um, it's just becoming very difficult in our secular age to teach the truths of the Catholic faith in a truly uh, orthodox, integrated way without the state getting involved. Mm -hmm. It becomes very, very difficult. And so you see the rise of these smaller diocesan local institutions providing this alternative formation. So these are kind of very interesting times that we're living in. I think it's a very good movement at large. Um, but again, I would just talk to your local priest. Um, we have wonderful resources on our on our website as well. That can again, it's alquininstitute.org. Correct. Right. Okay. All right. Good. Can we have time for one more caller? Of course. Uh, Mary Ann. Hi, Father. Hi. Dick. Where are you calling from? Ohio. Wonderful. And your question? I'm a volunteer instructor of catechism to third graders, uh, 10 children, seven of which are boys. I'd like to understand what your guest would suggest in terms of um, of, um, I can't hear you. I hear you see, talking on the phone, but what he would suggest is applying his principles to children of that age. Okay. So we have just about a minute or so. How can she teach these small children in her catechism class? What would be some good materials to give them? There's, I would recommend looking into Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. Mm -hmm. It's a very common program, and I think more and more parishes are adopting the program. It's a very good program. It really emphasizes this quote-unquote poetic mode of learning, mm -hmm. so learning first through the senses. The whole notion is that if we want Christ to reside in our intellects and our wills, he must first reside in our senses, mm -hmm. in our imaginations. Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's get these children involved with actually experiencing the beauty, the goodness, the the, the wonder of, of reality. And you know, I know parents, uh, some of my parishioners are using this catechesis of the Good Shepherd. It is very, very solid. And, and does uh, something else too, I don't know their reading ability, but I think they can handle this. I used to use the Chronicles of Narnia with my high school students. They would read a couple of those and then I would have them read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity mm. so that their imagination first was prepared for that. Wonderful. 
But we are out of time. I'm sorry, I wish we had more. It was a lot of fun. Um, again, it's alquininstitute.org if you want to find out more. I want to thank you for being with us. And may Almighty God bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast can be found on your favorite streaming platform, including Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. 